0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when
2: you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession, we're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Christmas and New Year's come to much of the world, but war takes no holiday in the Middle East or in Eastern Europe. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on why we didn't get that recession we expected this year.
4: I'm not... Terribly surprised that we haven't seen a recession in 2023. Mary Lovely of the Peterson
3: Institute on China's continuing economic struggle to rebound from the COVID lockdown.
5: The deep sense of malaise we think still lies within the population and within people's expectations for the future.
3: And Scott Bach of Greenhill on what's really going on in places like Penn and
4: Harvard.
6: Donors are absolutely free to give to whatever organizations they want or not to and to withhold for any reason they choose to. But they're not shareholders, so I don't think they should have a particularly loud voice in how a university is run.
3: Most of Global Wall Street spent the week celebrating the holidays, taking a break from earnings reports and the Fed and the eco-data. But there was no break for those waging war in Ukraine and in Gaza as Ukrainian forces hit a Russian warship and shot down several fighter jets. And in the Middle East, Israeli forces continued to seek out Hamas militants and Houthi rebels hit targets in the Red Sea, disrupting shipping in the region.
1: Half of all container ship fleets now currently no longer going through the Red Sea. In the
3: world of commerce, holiday shopping appeared to be holding up, showing that consumers still have some money to spend.
5: couple of holiday shopping seasons we had to wait until the very last minute to see those consumer dollars flow through.
3: While Apple got a temporary reprieve of the ban on its watches as the Court of Appeals sorts out whether it infringed a patent covering sensors to monitor blood oxygen levels.
4: They have a
5: stay until the U.S. Customs makes a decision on a software fix that
3: Apple submitted uh, to the government. Equity markets eked out another up week despite a bit of a sell-off on Friday as the S&P 500 gained just over three-tenths of 1% for the week, but that put it up a whopping 24% for the year as a whole, ending at 47.69. That's way above the median estimate of our Bloomberg elves for this year and only a bit under the estimate of 48.32 for the end of next year. The Nasdaq gained just over one-tenth of a percent this week, but was up over 43% for the year overall. It was a very different story for bonds with the yield on the tenure all over the place in 2023, but it ended up just about where it started a year ago, just under 3.9%. To take us through it all, welcome now, Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer of Calcer. So, Chris, yeah, I have to say, you've put me to shame here, that dashing tuxedo, your black tie and your champagne. Boy, happy new year to you.
7: Well, uh, apple cider, but that's okay. <laughs> happy new year to you, David. And it, it really, it's the year that deserves a toast. Uh, I'm right there with Larry I mean uh, I expected a recession but we certainly didn't have one and it's a spectacular year of 20, a double digits 20 percent just amazing
3: so what about on the equity side up over 20 percent or even up over 40 percent on the Nasdaq how much of that was just the anticipation of Fed cuts
7: well you know uh, it, it all happened in the last quarter of the year because really when you look at the equally weighted S&P 500 that was actually negative back at Halloween and then had a huge rally here at the end. It was really those seven magnificent stocks. And on the NASDAQ, that really shows up. Best year since 99. Now, that's a lot to celebrate, but wait a minute. Think about 1999. For those of us that were in the market, you can't forget 2001, too. So uh, it was a difficult time. We'll see how this carries through. But what an incredible year for equities. I was wrong. I predicted David, that the markets would be down this year because, well, gee, the Fed raised interest rates 525 percent. Should have had a rough market. And let's be clear, the Fed hasn't eased rates, but the bond market has done it for them. You pointed out, it's right back where it started the year, but my goodness, the long bond dropped almost 100 basis points since the Fed pivot. Uh, that's amazing in such a short period of time.
3: So, what does that say to set up next year, 2024, for you? You have a lot of money at work. How are you taking a look at 2024? How are you positioning yourself?
7: Well, first, I'm celebrating because thanks to this market, all-time record high for our fund, 327 billion dollars. But I have to tell you, there are certainly dark clouds on the horizon. I think the Fed has pulled off the soft landing, but we still have a lot of risks that we have to get through, and You know, hope does triumph over experience. I know uh, uh, Larry Summers likes to say that it shouldn't, but sometimes it does. And right now I'm hopeful. I think the Fed's pulled it off, but when you step back and look at this market, we've now created a double top in the S&P 500 in December of 21 and now in 23. As as an old-time technician, that makes me a bit worried. That doesn't mean we should have a bear market, but I think a president's election cycle we know in history is at best a low single-digit return in the S&P 500. I would expect, you know, the, like the elves, barely positive. To uh, Some of our forecasts that we've looked at are slightly negative. So right now people's expectations are certainly damped down in the next year. I hope the public and the private markets finally open back up, because private equity and real estate really had a struggle last year the markets were almost frozen we're starting to see a few transactions uh, but certainly in the commercial office market values are going to reprice down dramatically and then in, in private equity we're starting to see merger monday here in december every monday a few announcements that's a good sign that maybe that market will open back up
3: so chris i'm going to let you get back to your celebration it's really great to have you with us once again happy new year my friend great to have you with us
7: Happy New Year and to Wall Street week. Thank you very much David. Good to see you.
3: That's Chris Allen of Group. A year ago, China was emerging from its COVID lockdown, and just about everyone expected a sharp economic upturn. It didn't quite work out that way. To explain what happened and give us a sense of what's likely to come in the new year, we welcome back now Mary Lovely. She's senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Mary, great to have you with you, a true China expert. So give us a sense, first of all, what went wrong for China economically in 2023, because it wasn't as good as people expected.
5: Well, I mean, in some sense, it had things that went wrong and things that went right. I mean, what went wrong, of course, is that one, an estimated 1.4 million people died from the quick spread of the, of the virus, through the economy, through the, through the population. Um, on the other hand, it did go through the, the country at a very rapid pace, and recovery began before, I think many of us expected that it would. The second quarter was particularly tough. high levels of unemployment. Fall in industrial production, uh, fall in consumption. But then, by probably by the middle of summer, you know they had basically hit the bottom and were beginning to bounce back. Uh, the bounce has been significant. They're on track to uh, record about a five or 5.2 percent GDP growth for 2023. But a deep sense of malaise, we think, still lies within the population and within people's expectations for the future, and that that looks ahead to 2024.
3: Mary, you refer to a general malaise going on. What can the government, what can President Xi Jinping do to address that malaise?
5: I think one of the main things that private businesses want is more clarity on how private businesses are going to be regulated and how the push toward economic securitization is going to impact their businesses. We saw the rollout of the counter espionage rule this year. That gave a lot of businesses uh, a pause. What kind of data could be transferred and to whom? uh, It's very unclear what happens when one does transfer data that the government decides ex post should not have been transferred. I think the government has has tried to clarify this but Part of the way Chinese uh, legal system works is to allow for a significant amount of interpretation. Uh, and that means from the point of view of businesses, uh, vulnerabilities, uh, ambiguities that raise uncertainty for them. That is it has a chilling effect.
3: What about the, the debt situation? We hear a lot about the debt borne, particularly by local governments, uh, and there's some move for the, the national government to take over some of that debt, as I understand it. But there's a lot of debt overhanging in China. Does that limit President Xi's uh, uh, options in dealing with the Malays?
5: Well, the, the central government has taken the unusual step of issuing bonds and then providing them to the local governments to spend. Um, so I think the central government recognizes that, uh, you know, local government finances are quite fragile. They have moved also to ask um, state banks to provide more credit um, for property uh, developers, particularly to complete units which have already been purchased. Uh, so in what this does is it gives new cash to companies which may be a- unable to pay old loans. And it really begins to absorb that debt within the state banking system.
3: Mary, thank you so very much. Really great to have you with us. That is Mary Lovely, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute. And this is Wall Week on Bloomberg. Today's show
0: is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out Public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank us only learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account
1: from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie i'm emily chang
3: From Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And take us through this year that is now ending 2023 and look forward to 2024. We welcome now our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. So Larry, thanks so much for being with us at the very end of the year here. Looking back at 2023, uh, there was an issue about inflation, about how we could get under control, what caused it. And Team Transitory, led perhaps by Paul Krugman, said it really was a supply chain thing. It would go away. You were more concerned about exactly the demand side and what that Fed needed to do. Looking back on it, which was right, what was wrong?
4: I think there's some of both. Uh, Look, to start with, we basically got an outcome that was closer to Team Transitory's prediction. Inflation came down. With policy, that is what their opponents were insisting on, interest rates far beyond what they were recommending, far beyond what the Fed was predicting as of almost any date. Uh, in the recent past. So the record's a bit ambiguous. Yes, absolutely, there have been important supply elements. Uh, I have always stressed that we never were an 8% or a 7% inflation country, that because of bottlenecks, a variety of prices went up, adding to inflation, and they would then come down subtracting uh, from inflation. I'm not sure we're really a 2% target inflation country in any durable sense. I look, for example, at the 5.2% wage increase the federal government just gave at strike activity that's more than... It's been in a decade at still tight uh, labor markets, at potential geopolitical risks in commodity markets, at the fact that house prices have really started to turn uh, back up. And I'm far from sure where we're going to go on inflation. So to declare that proverbial soft landing to have taken place uh, seems to me to be uh, premature. So I think we're still in an ambiguous situation. Uh, I've been saying, David, on your show uh, for close to a year now that there are three possibilities, that the economy turns down uh, quickly. That the economy achieves the proverbial soft landing, and that in a sense we never we don't ever achieve a secure landing, and inflation never really gets down to target, and even reaccelerates. And obviously, we didn't see the hard landing in 2023. I was never as sure as many people were that that would come because as you also know, I've been arguing that neutral interest rates have gone up, so policy's not as contractionary as many people expect, and that the impact of interest rates are lower than many people have expected. So I'm not terribly surprised that we haven't seen a recession in uh, 2023. And I think there are, Risks. looking at some of the credit figures for the next uh, while. We may achieve that soft landing. I'd certainly say it looks better and more likely than it did six or eight months ago. Uh, I always said that soft landings were the triumph of hope over experience, but occasionally hope may triumph over experience. And I think there's still a risk that the market is probably underestimating that we're not going to quite make as much progress on inflation. So, Laurie, we look at these questions not only
3: because they're interesting historically, but to give us some direction for the future, where we should be heading. And so as you look at the risks, as you describe them, what about the symmetry of them? Because some people are concerned that we have a bigger risk of a recession if we keep tight policy than we do of inflation running away. Where do you put the balance of the risk between recession by overly uh, restrictive policy as opposed to letting inflation get it? ahead of us?
4: I think they're both very real risks. I'm a little surprised by the view that puts primary emphasis on the recession risk, given what's happened to financial conditions in the last two months. Um, the stock market's taken off again. House prices are now rising at a 6 or 7% uh, annual uh, rate long-term interest rates and with the mortgage rates have come down substantially. I, I think that in a way we've already seen a substantial easing of financial conditions. And so I think we'd better be a bit careful with respect to uh, the inflation uh, prospect and that continues to be a source of concern uh, for me.
3: And finally Larry, uh, 2023 was a year of geopolitical strife. We started it with the war in Ukraine continuing. We added then the attack of Hamas on Israel and the difficulties that's raised in the Middle East for so many people. We have continued tension with China. As you look at the macroeconomics of 2024, how How did geopolitics fit in?
4: The post-Cold War holiday from history is uh, over. The world is once again a very dangerous place with the prospect of war between uh, major powers. The way in which the United States has conceived itself in terms of national security is no longer viable. We are going to have to invest substantially more in all aspects of national security. That ranges from increased defense spending well above current uh, projections to thinking about national security issues as we think about our educational uh, system as we did after uh, Sputnik, to thinking about our investment in connections uh, all over uh, the world.
3: Larry, thank you so much for being with us here at the end of the year. But thank you for all your contributions on Wall Street Week throughout the year. That is Larry Summers, our special contributor. He is, of course, from Harvard. Coming up, the Hamas attack on Israel in October led to dramatic developments in the Middle East that spilled over onto college campuses in the United States. We'll talk with Scott Bach, the former chair of the University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees, about what happened at Penn and what we should learn from it. But
6: I don't think trustees should overreact in this, in the, in this situation of, a, of what could be a short-term
0: crisis.
3: That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Unrest on college campuses. In the aftermath of the Hamas attacks on Israel, American universities have been thrust into a national fight over lines between healthy debate and destructive invective we've had major donors condemn administrations for tolerating cultures where some students no longer feel safe. The underlying
6: culture that permitted this to happen
3: is just so strong,
6: and until there is a moment of self-reflection where we're not dealing with just anti-Semitism, we're dealing with the culture that allowed this to happen, there really is gonna be no progress, and to date, there's been no progress. It's really not a question of free speech. This is a question of favored speech and disfavored speech and an institutional psychology and an institutional
3: culture. We've had college presidents called before Congress and asked to condemn calls
5: for genocide. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes.
2: It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman.
5: It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment.
3: And we've had former college presidents insist that there's been a basic breakdown in who's responsible for what's going on in our academic communities.
4: I think for some years now, they have been substantially AWOL, AWOL as The climate of hypersensitivity has developed AWOL as the relationship between the university and external communities has uh, broken down. Leaving
3: us to yearn for a world where we can disagree, even strongly disagree, without deterring others from speaking out.
4: I suspect something will happen, but I don't know that Congress will do anything. I think the university boards are probably going to be more sensitive to these issues. There is going to be more security for certain students there, for sure. But I think there'll be more of a move towards a University of Chicago approach where more people are allowed to say what they think without feeling that if they say something that's unpopular, they'll be criticized or harmed physically.
3: And to take us through what some of these disputes look like from the inside, we welcome now Scott Bach. He is chairman of Greenhill. Until recently, he was chair of the Board of Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to Wall Street Week. Really appreciate you being here, Scott. First of all, give us a sense from the inside, because you saw from the inside, what do you think has gone on and what should we learn from the experience?
6: Well, look, I think we've had a a bit of a crisis
3: on on some of the leading
6: elite universities in America in in the last few months, and we haven't had one in a long time. It's really been a a long period of quiet and progress at those uh, schools, and so there are a number of questions that have been raised that haven't been raised in quite a while.
3: Uh, and, and what about the response to are, are People a little rusty. I mean, I, I went to school back in the 70s when there was a lot of this going on. Uh, and, in fact, uh, administrations were used to dealing with demonstrations. Is part of the issue that, in fact, the administrations haven't been used to this? They sort of have to get the rule book back out.
6: I think that's exactly right. And frankly, trustees haven't given governance a thought in, in, a, in a very long period of time. You don't tend to think about governance when everything's going great, but when you have something that you know, creates a controversy, suddenly people look back at that. And I think a lot of trustees you know maybe have forgotten that the way universities are governed, that this combination of trustees, a uh, president in the administration, and also the faculty play an important role.
3: Well, we'll talk about that for a minute about governance specifically, uh, because we've had, for example, at Penn, but also at Harvard, and other places, uh, donors really speak out very forcefully, even make demands, as they would put it, about changes to be made. Uh, back when I was practicing law, I know you did as well. We used to talk about a bad volleyball team where everybody goes to the same position. What are the respective positions, if it's done properly, of the trustees, the president administration, the faculty, and for that matter, donors? What should those positions be?
6: Look, I think to start with donors, I I, I think donors are absolutely free to give to whatever organizations they want or not to and to withhold for any reason they choose to. But they're not shareholders, so I don't think they should have a particularly loud voice in how a university is run. There is a governance system that's been in place for decades, if not centuries, in many cases, and that involves really trustees, the administration, and the faculty historically trustees really focused on the financial viability of the organization they did the budget they did review the audit of the financials they invested the endowment they made sure that the the entity was going to be viable for the long term because these are meant to be perpetual institutions of course Uh, the president and the administration really run the 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 business of the university day-to-day and along with the faculty they run all the academic affairs and it's really been very rare in my experience really almost two decades Uh, On a board of a university, where the the trustees get it all involved in academics, so I think they need to be careful. Uh, about how much they reach into that area. And I know faculty are very concerned that, that they not reach too far into that area.
3: You mentioned two areas, academics on the one hand, finances on the other. Obviously you're a prime example of somebody who's really, really knowledgeable in finance. It would make sense to have you on a board and indeed chair of a board. There is a third area though, which I would call reputational risk. I mean, existential risk for the institution that maybe includes both academics and finances, but who should be responsible for that? And what sort of people do you need at the table Making those decisions.
6: Well, I think clearly, if it's an existential sort of threat, I mean, everybody needs to be involved in that. I don't think trustees can sort of seize control, nor can the president do whatever the president wants to do, or the faculty take charge either. It Probably needs to be everybody uh, involved in something like that. But I don't think trustees should overreact in this in the in the situation of a of what could be a short-term crisis and and take too much control. It still needs to be a collaborative. Uh, effort, because that is the peculiar nature of governance in these these institutions. They're not public companies, and they really aren't run by uh, like public companies historically.
3: By the way, there's another player that's gotten involved here, and that's the United States Congress, uh, because the mm-hmm. president of Pennsylvania as well as Harvard and MIT were called before Congress. What if anything is the proper role of the government in trying to influence the way this is handled on college campuses?
6: Well, I think the government has a very big role, of course, in public universities and a smaller role in private universities. But, you know, governments get involved in in, in a lot of ways in any institution in American life. So you have to be ready to deal with congressional or other government inquiries when they come. And they do do provide financial support uh, to even the most private of universities in the sense of research funding and things like that. So they're going to have their legitimate questions from time to time. And. And those need to be to be answered. But fundamentally, the institutions we're talking about are private and they're run fundamentally by the trustees, the administration of the university, and the faculty. And that's worked for a long time. I mean, I think it's important to remember, you know, elite universities in America are the envy of the world. I mean, people all over America uh, go to great lengths to get into these places. People from all over the world do. You don't see a lot of you know kids from New York City trying to go to a a foreign university to get their degree. You see a lot of them in Europe and Asia Latin America elsewhere trying to come to America to get a degree because they see real value to that.
3: In the 1960s and into the 70s, part of what we saw in college campuses was a reflection more broadly of what's going on in society. I wonder if that's part of what we're seeing now, because generally across our society, there is more polarization. People are more outspoken. Uh, they're more actually coarse with one another in the no- nature of the discourse. And if that's right, what can campuses do? What can colleges do maybe to help us more broadly in society deal with some of these issues?
6: Look, I think that's a major factor here. There, we are in a more divided society, and the, and the divisions tend to be quite deep. And people tend to see things in a black or white way. There's a lot of, a lot of, and the voices you hear are on the extremes, right? You are the extreme right, the extreme left. I do think it's important, and I've tried to convey in some of the comments I've made in recent uh, days and weeks that you know what you see on social media, what you see maybe in a newspaper quote, what you see in a clip on, on television is a very small part of what actually happens on campus. I mean. As As with anything else in life, the noisiest people get the most attention.
3: Why did you step down? Because you could still contribute to, to the solution, could you not?
6: I could certainly, I mean, I felt like our board got particularly divided at one point and I felt like clearly there is a debate, and it's not just a pen, it's a number of schools across America, about the role of trustees, faculty and administration and managing universities. I think that's a very important debate. And frankly I felt like I could contribute more to that debate from the outside than the inside. You know, if you're the chair of an institution that has in our case almost 50 trustees, you have to speak for that whole group. You can't you have to be very, very careful what you say because you're speaking for the whole entity, a whole Large group of trustees. Uh, if you're on the outside, you can speak more freely, and I think I, I have contributed. And hopefully, even these comments here uh, will help people understand that there's not there's not a huge crisis. It's a small percent, uh, very very small percent of the students that are doing things that would be troubling for most people. Uh, yes, there are things you can do about that, but we shouldn't fundamentally tear up you know a governance model that's worked for a very very long time and made our universities the envy of the world uh, because of a very short-term
3: crisis. Uh, Scott, you certainly have helped me a lot understand uh, from a really useful perspective what's going on. Thank you so much to Scott Bach. He is chairman of Greenhill. Coming up, does crime have its own internal rate of return? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. U.S. markets are ending up the year on an up note but there are at least some economists who are seeing some headwinds for the global economy overall. For her views on the economy in 2023 and what we're expecting in 2024, welcome back now, Janice Everly. She's professor of finance at the Northwestern Kellogg School. Professor, thanks so much for being back with us on Wall Street Week. Good to have you here. It's
2: my pleasure, David. Good to see you.
3: We spent a lot of 2023 that felt like fighting against inflation in the United States, but more broadly. Have we largely put that behind us, do you think, as we go into 2024?
2: When we last spoke, we noted that that in some cases the the past is not a great guide to the to the present, and the last few years have really been outside the the data that we're used to seeing, especially you know in the in recent history over the the post-war period, and 2023 is a great example of that. History was not a good guide to 2023. Um, some things really were different this time around.
3: Uh, what about supply chains when it comes to China? because it appears there's been some reformation of supply chains, maybe pulling back some from China, and maybe going to some places like India or Southeast Asia or even Mexico. As we go into 2024, do you see potential for resurgence and growth in some of those areas?
2: It's not as if China has moved out of the supply chain. They just uh, maybe occupy, they've moved up and down the supply chain, in particular up the supply chain, uh, and to become suppliers to other manufacturers. Uh, So they still play a very important role, which will help their economy, help them to remain stronger. Um, And then you see this diversification moving down the supply chain, uh, which will uh... help other countries in southeast asia in particular um, but also mexico for example
3: professor great to have you back on wall street week thank you very much appreciate your being here that is professor janice Eberly of northwestern's kellogg school Finally, one more thought. Back in 1860, the UK law magazine wrote that crime does not pay, saying that the benefit of prison was providing time to reflect on that basic maxim. And through much of history, it seems to have been true. After all, Charles Ponzi did end up in prison for that scheme named after him, as did Jordan Belfort, the famous Wolf of Wall Street. Though Belfort did have a second act after prison, writing successful books about his experiences and giving motivational speeches, Bernie Madoff had no second act. After being found guilty of masterminding the biggest financial fraud in history, he was sentenced to 150 years in prison and spent the rest of his life there if you did utilize the fictional
6: statements that Mr. Madoff was creating, you would be in effect reinforcing the fraud, letting the fraudster decide the outcome, which certainly would be far from fair under any
3: circumstances. But they say the exception proves the rule. And this week, Global Wall Street got what appears to be a big exception to the rule about crime not paying. This was the year that Chung-Beng Zhao, or CZ as his friends call him, pleaded guilty to a host of federal criminal charges for the way he ran Binance, the largest crypto exchange in the world. The message here should be clear. Using new technology to break the law does not make you a disruptor. It makes you a criminal. CZ faces sentencing in the coming year, but now Bloomberg reports that despite his legal problems, Mr. Zhao increased his wealth this year by a cool $25 billion, which on its face looks like a pretty good return on some pretty bad behavior. And in the new year, we all may get to look at this crime paying question from a very different perspective. We've all heard repeatedly about the 91 criminal counts pending against former President Donald Trump in four different prosecutions.
5: My message is simple
2: no matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have,
5: no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my
1: job to enforce it.
3: Under U.S. law, we presume all defendants are innocent until proven guilty, and Mr. Trump is certainly no exception. At this point, it's far from clear whether or when any of these accusations will even make it to a jury. And by that time, he could well be president once again. Thank you. But in the meantime, it appears that even the act of charging him with crimes may be paying off, at least when it comes to fundraising. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week and next year.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.